0: If you have your Bibles here, you can open at John 6, and we're going to spend some time in this chapter this morning. So I'm reading from verse 57 to 60, verse 57 to 60, and then I'm going to jump to 66, and we'll take it from there. The Father sent me. He lives, and I live because of him. So everyone who eats me will live because of me. I am not like the bread that your ancestors ate. They ate that bread, but they still died. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Jesus said all this while he was teaching in the synagogue in the city of Capernaum. When Jesus' followers heard this, many of them said, this teaching is hard, who can accept it? After Jesus said these things, many of his followers left and stopped following him. Jesus asked the 12 apostles, Do you want to leave too? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, where would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. When Jesus addresses the people in verse 57 and uh, 58, he refers back to the time of Moses and what God did for them in the desert. And it's almost as if he's saying, yes, I agree with you. What my father did back then was good. But what about what he is doing right now? Now, I don't know if any of you have had the privilege of meeting someone. You get those people who they have this one story that they tell. And they keep on telling the same story over and over. And it's usually some sort of story about Something great that happened in their life or or something amazing they witnessed. And it's like after that one story, their lives stopped. It's almost as if they have confined their whole existence to this one moment in time. And they keep on grabbing at it, they keep on holding on to it and, and trying to relive this moment. Does that sound familiar? Yes, yes, bread of life and all of that. That's great, Jesus. But but Remember what your dad did in the desert for people? Do something like that again. That was really cool. And a few verses earlier, still in the same chapter, the people crossed the lake to get to Capernaum after Jesus had just performed this miracle of feeding the 5,000. Now, to some of us, we might look at these people and think, these boykis are real Christians. I mean, they are real followers of Jesus. Literally. I mean, they are making an effort to get to him. They even crossed the lake to get to him. And in our modern context, this might sound something like Of course, I'm a devoted follower of Jesus. I mean, I, I almost never miss a service. I, everywhere I drive, I listen to Hillsong in the car. I'm part of a home cell group. I regularly give to various charity organizations. Blah, 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 blah. I'm not saying any of these things are bad, they're not. I'm saying you can do all those things without having an actual relationship with Jesus. And so Jesus is not fooled by their apparent admiration of him. In fact, the Bible calls this the presence or the, the appearance of holiness without any real power. Jesus asks them as they arrive, why are you looking for me? Is it because you saw miraculous signs? The truth is you're looking for me because you ate the bread and were satisfied. But earthly food spoils and ruins. So don't work to get that kind of food, but work to get the food that stays good and gives you eternal life. The Son of Man will give you that food. He is the only one qualified by God the Father to give it to you. Jesus is trying to show these people the way forward. The Son of Man had come to set us free from the jaws of death. No longer will we be mere objects of God's wrath, but through Christ Jesus, our inevitable damnation had been turned into eternal salvation. Isn't this freaking great news? So what do they say? What miraculous sign will you do for us? If we can see you do a miracle, then we will believe you. What will you do? Our ancestors were in manna to eat in the desert. As the scriptures say, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. When I read this the first time, the way I heard it in my head, it's so stupid. I mean, they're standing in front of Jesus. And then they quote scripture to him. As the scriptures say, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Stupid. Show us another trick. Give us a good show. We demand a performance. Dance for us, Jesus. Dance to our heart's delight. On the 25th of May in 2005, I surrendered my life to Jesus. It was in Dwashkash I don't know if you've visited the, the caravan park there. There's a little uh, hall. It was in that hall. And a few weeks later, this sparked such an incredible passion in my heart that I went to the headmaster in high school Friedenberg. Not actually the headmaster. It was um, near Meirung, who was Meirung. And I begged him to give me an opportunity to speak at our biweekly assemblies. I was relentless, to say the least. So I don't think he had much of a choice. I, I think even if he had said no that day, I would have just gotten on stage anyway and said what I felt I needed to say. Luckily, probably due to my persistence and um, well, and his frustration, he agreed to give me five minutes to speak. And so we sat down, they opened the assembly, and soon after they called out my name. And I walked up the steps, got on the stage, and as I stood in front of the podium, all of a sudden it dawned on me. I'm 14 years old. I'm not really that good looking. I'm not popular at all, I'm not good at academics, I'm terrible at sports, given I had great hair, but somehow 14-year-old me doubted that that would be enough to convince 1,200 teenagers that morning that what I was about to say would be infinitely important. What I wanted to share that morning could change the course of the rest of their lives, not because of me, but because of Jesus. And so <laughs> for a brief moment I I kind of forgot how breathing worked. And I was shaking and I became extremely aware of the fact that I haven't been to the bathroom that morning. But um I pulled myself together. And to be honest, I don't remember much of what happened that morning or how exactly it went down. But of two things I'm very sure. The one was the overwhelming love of God rushing through my body. And number two was my ferocious desire to share it with everyone that I met. So I picked up the mic, and uh, that morning, in front of 1,200 teenagers, I said, If you want to know Jesus, stand up and I'll pray for you. I had a moment of supernatural courage, a moment where I was completely captivated by the love and the grace of God. So what? I mean, don't get me wrong. Great story, really. And I'm not trying to diminish the work that God did in my heart that morning and in the hearts of probably some of the teenagers that were present. But so what? That was in 2005. That's more than 10 years ago. See, we all have these stories that we hold on to, stories of great things that God did in our lives way back when. And that's good. These stories remind us of the times that God showed up in the midst of our struggles. But here's the problem, for some of us that's all we have left. Is stories of what God did in our lives a long time ago when we were still young and brave. When lost that you really allow the Holy Spirit to shake your heart? When last did you have a moment where you were captivated by the love and the grace of God? And I need you to understand what I'm asking this morning. I'm not on, asking when last did you perform. I'm not asking when last did you do a bunch of good stuff in the name of Jesus. I'm also not asking you if you've performed any miracles lately. I'm simply asking when last were you truly and madly in love with Jesus like the way like the, the first few days of a teenage relationship like that kind of in love with Jesus infatuated with him i haven't spoken to him for like 2 minutes i miss him already kind of when last were you that in love with Jesus when last were you genuinely excited to spend some time with him when last did you come to this church on the Sunday, feeling excited. Like, wow, I, I can't wait for what God is going to do this morning. As I was asking myself these questions earlier this week, I I felt a little, a little guilty, probably, and a little convicted. And so I wanted to say, if you're feeling a little convicted at the moment, that is a good thing. It means that you still care. And also, if you feel that, the expectation Christianity is placing on you is too heavy of a burden to carry, then you don't understand this message. And I think this is exactly what happened to the people when Jesus tried to give them the teaching of of the bread of life. Eat my flesh. I am the bread of life. Eat of me and you'll never die. It was too heavy of a burden. They couldn't accept the teaching because they didn't understand it. And I believe they didn't understand it because they were so zoomed in, so focused on on the doing, on the miracles, on the stuff happening, on the fruits that they forgot all about the roots, The, the simply being with Jesus. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, many will say to me on that day when I judge them, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and driven out demons in your name and done many miracles in your name? And then I will declare to them publicly, I never knew you. Depart from me. You are banished from my presence. You who act wickedly, disregarding my commands. A little while ago I read uh, an article and I wanted to just share a short passage out of this article with with you this morning. It says There were people in Jesus' day who thought they were friends of His because they knew the law, made strict rules for themselves and for others, and listened to His teaching. They followed Him, applauded the miracles, and liked some of what He said. But Jesus calls them evildoers and states, I never knew you. Today, there are thousands who know about Jesus. That is, they know some facts about Him, commit Bible verses to memory and perhaps attend church regularly. But they've never allowed the facts to become their personal reality. They hold knowledge in their heads without allowing the truth to penetrate their hearts. In other words, they might be planted near Christ. They look like Christians, but they've never been rooted in Christ. And Jesus talks about these types of people. He says in Matthew 15, These people honor me with their words, but I'm not really important to them. Their worship of me is worthless. The things they teach are only human rules. I struggled a lot with this message. And more specifically, I struggled getting an answer to the question, why should I give this message? Why should I share this message today? What is it that I feel God wants to communicate through me this morning? And I struggled with it. But eventually I got my answer. And I believe what God is trying to say to us this morning is that he misses us. And it's not a, oh, cute kind of moment. It's a very personal, intimate thing. He's saying to each of us as individuals, I miss you. I miss spending time with you. I miss our conversations. I miss your heart. I miss you. In verse 67, still chapter 6, after the 5,000 that just crossed the lake told Jesus that they're not going to be his followers anymore because he refused to put up a show, they turned away and he turned towards his apostles and he asked them, Do you want to leave too? And it's not like he's asking this out of fear that they would abandon him, but rather to distinguish them from the rest. He's saying, I know the hearts of of these people. I know their hearts are selfish and self-centered, and they don't really care about me. They don't even really believe in who I am. But you 12, you are different. You are not like the rest of the world. You have been chosen for something far greater. And I want to use this opportunity to remind us this morning that if we are sitting here, if you're sitting here, and you believe in Jesus, and you believe in what the Bible tells us about him and who he is, and you've devoted your life to Christ, then you have been chosen for something far greater than this world can offer us. I hope you make good use of this gift. Peter responds to Jesus' question. He says, Lord, where would we go? And I tried to place myself in Peter's shoes in that moment. And what i found, and this is just my opinion, is when he said this, I don't think it was a happy moment. I think it was a, a lamentation moment. I think it was a, a bittersweet moment. In fact, as I read it, what I hear, it's, it's as if it was a sigh. It was Jesus, or not Jesus, it was Peter saying to Jesus, Lord, where would we go? Isn't it amazing to you how Peter has these flashes of divine clarity in one moment and immediately in the next, he cuts off the God's ear without batting an eye. And I've always wondered, why would Jesus pick someone like Peter to be the sort of unspoken leader of the twelve? I mean, he, he was impatient. He was ill-tempered. Okay, let's give it to him. He left everything behind to follow Jesus. And yet he struggled with doubt and fear. But see, despite all these things that apparently counted against him, Peter possessed a passion for God, a love in his heart to be close to Jesus that changed the world. Maybe some of us here this morning can relate to Peter. Maybe you have some flaws. Maybe you're still in a process. Maybe like Peter, you don't quite fit the, the socially acceptable box the world has tried to place Christianity in. But despite all these things, despite all our flaws, despite where you are in your process, despite all the opinions everyone has about you, when it's just you and jesus in the room when the noise of this world has drained out and nothing is left but you and jesus and he asks do you want to leave too when it's just you and jesus and he's saying to you are you in or are you out there's no halfway are you in or are you out what would be your answer Lord, where would we go? As if to say, Jesus, what does it even matter what we do or or where we go or what our plans are if you're not there with us? Moses had the same revelation in Exodus 33. Moses says to God, If you don't go with us and don't make us leave this place, Lord, where would we go? This is what it means. To be rooted in Christ. This is the difference between being planted near Christ. Near the river. And being rooted in Christ. Lord, where would we go? What is the point? If you're not there with us. Those that cross the river to get to Jesus just to see another miracle. In other words, those that came to see the show. Those that come to warm the seats. Those that we call... The Sunday Christians, they are like trees planted close to the river, refusing to take up root. These types of people love keeping busy with things that make them appear Christ-like, but their hearts are far from God. I want to read you a, so- a short passage out of a, a book by C.S. Lewis, and I've I've spoken about this book before because, well, it's a good book, and I highly recommend it, and it's called The, the Screwtape Letters. And he sort of addresses this issue. So it says, Satan called a worldwide convention. In his opening address to his evil angels, he said, We can't keep the Christians from going to church. We can't keep them from reading their Bibles and knowing the truth. We can't even keep them from forming an intimate, abiding relationship experience in Christ. If they gain that connection with Jesus, our power over them is broken. So let them go to church. Let them have their conservative lifestyles, but steal their time so they can't gain that experience in Jesus. This is what I want you to do, my angels. Distract them from gaining hold of their Savior and maintaining that vital connection throughout their day. How shall we do this? Shouted his angels. Keep them busy in the non-essentials of life and invent innumerable schemes to occupy their minds. He answered, tempt them to spend, 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 and borrow, borrow, borrow. Persuade them to work for long hours, to work six, seven days a week, 10, 12 hours a day, so they can afford their lifestyles. Keep them from spending time with their children. And as the family fragments, soon their home will offer no escape from the pressures of work, Overstimulate their minds so that they cannot hear that still, small voice. Entice them to play the radio or cassette player whenever they drive. To keep the TV, VCR, CDs, and their PCs going constantly in their homes. And see to it that every store and restaurant in the world plays non-biblical music constantly. This will jam their minds and break that union with Christ. Fill the coffee tables with magazines and newspapers. Count their minds with the news 24 hours a day. Invade their driving moments with billboards. Flood their mailboxes with junk mail, sweepstakes, mail order catalogs, and every kind of newsletter and promotion offering free products, services, and false hopes. Even in their recreation, let them be excessive. Have them return from their recreation exhausted, disquieted, and unprepared for the coming week. Don't let them go out in nature to reflect on God's wonders. Rather, send them to amusement parks, sporting events, concerts, and movies instead. And when they meet for spiritual fellowship, involve them in gossip and small talk so that they leave with troubled consciences and unsettled emotions. Let them be involved in soul winning, but crowd their lives with so many good causes that they have no time to seek power from Christ. Soon they will be working in their own strength, sacrificing their health and family for the good of the cause. Are you still in love with Jesus? Are you planted near him with the appearance of holiness, but with no real power? Or are you rooted in Christ? In other words, is he the center of your universe? Is He the thing that holds everything together? Knowing and realizing that your life, as you know it, is pointless if He is not there with you. Lord, where would we go?